Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 208 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about praying across time. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Prayer is a human universal. All through human history, people have been praying to God or the gods. But what if there's something important you would want to pray for, and it's already happened? Suppose your friend is coming to see you by airplane, but then you learn that the airplane has crashed. Your friend is either alive or dead, but you don't know which. Can you pray that your friend survived the crash, or is it simply too late? Well, that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, why did you want to do this episode? I'm not going to answer that question just yet. We'll come back to it when we hit the reason perspective, because there's a twist coming in this story that you wouldn't expect. A twist in the reason perspective, despite the fact that this looks like a straight ahead theological mystery? Absolutely. And unless you heard me mention it on Catholic Answers Live, it'll be difficult to spot what the twist is going to be. I will say, though, that um, I've been interested in this subject for a long time, but there's a specific reason I decided to do this episode now. Okay, then let's get started with the background to this mystery. What do you mean by praying across time? In essence, praying to God concerning things that have already happened, uh, like the example you gave in the introduction. You mentioned uh, that you may hear that someone you know is was in a plane crash, but you don't know whether the person is alive or dead. And many people in that situation want to pray that the person that they know is alive. But the plane crash is in the past, and the person already is either alive or dead. So what you'd be praying for is that at that moment in the past where the plane crash occurred, God provided your friend with the protection needed to survive. So you're asking God now to do something at a moment that's already happened from your perspective. Having a friend involved in a plane crash is a pretty rare circumstance, thankfully. Can you name a more common one where a person may want to pray for something in the past? Sure. Uh, modern air safety is such that plane crashes, fortunately, are quite rare, but death is not. If you live long enough, everybody has relatives and friends who pass from this world. And since there are loved ones, we want them to be happy in the next world. And so it's natural to pray for their salvation. I'm not talking here about praying for them as they're purified of disordered desires that make them ready for heaven. That's what purgatory is. And everybody who goes to purgatory goes to heaven. It's just the cleanup process that gets you ready for heaven. So if your loved one is in purgatory, they're already saved. What I'm talking about is praying for their salvation, not their purification. But since whether a person is saved or not is fixed in the last moment of their life, this means praying for an event that is in the past from our perspective. It means asking that God give them the graces they need to come to him while they were still alive, perhaps in the last moments of life. So it means asking God to affect a moment in the past. What about prayers for ourselves rather than for our loved ones? 
are there situations where people want to pray for themselves about something in their own past? A common situation uh, where that happens is when people are waiting for the results of a medical test. These days, people are often in situations where their doctor suspects that they may have a particular condition that the person really does not want to have, like diabetes or cancer or something else. But it takes a while for them to get the test results to tell them whether the patient has it or not. And so the person's left in suspense. And while they're in suspense, they may very well pray things like, please, God, don't let me have diabetes or please don't let me have cancer. At the moment, they either do or don't, but they do have something that makes the doctor suspect diabetes or cancer. And they got that thing, whatever it is, some time ago, which was why the doctor was able to detect it. And for example, the doctor may have detected a lump in their body that he suspects of being cancer, but They got that lump some time ago. And so one way of understanding the person's prayer is that God would prevent that lump, whatever it is, from being cancerous. That's different than asking God to cure one's cancer. It's asking to not have had cancer. And that would involve God affecting the lump at the moment it was forming to prevent it from becoming cancerous, which would mean, again, God affecting a moment in the past from our current perspective. I don't know how many people actually parse this out, but but praying, please let this thing not be medical condition X, is is implicitly asking God to affect events in your past that have a bearing on whether you inquired that condition or not. When did you first come across this idea of praying for things in the past? Uh, I I don't really remember. It was actually I was quite young. Um, It was even before I was a Christian that I was aware that God is outside of time, and so he's not bound by time. And like Doc Brown exhorts Marty McFly to do in the Back to the Future movies, I tend to think four-dimensionally instead of in terms of strict linear causality. So I naturally started praying for things in the past or praying across time on my own. I later discovered that other people were doing it too. Like who? Who was the first person you discovered that advocated the idea of praying for events in the past. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Miracles, which is a really good book, he has an appendix called On Special Providences. And in it, he points out that many of the things we ask for in prayer involve events that have already been set up in the past. C.S. Lewis writes, Most of our prayers, if fully analyzed, ask either for a miracle or for events whose foundation will have to have been laid before I was born, indeed laid when the universe began. But then to God, though not to me, I and the prayer I make in 1945 were just as much present at the creation of the world as they are now and will be a million years hence. When we are praying about the result, say, of a battle or a medical consultation, the thought will often cross our minds that, if only we knew it, the event is already decided one way or the other. I believe this to be no good reason for ceasing our prayers. The event certainly has been decided. In a sense, it was decided before all the worlds. But one of the things taken into account in deciding it, and therefore one of the things that really caused it to happen, may be this very prayer that we are now offering. Thus, shocking as it may sound, I conclude that we can at noon become part causes of an event occurring at 10 a.m., So Lewis holds that you can pray at noon for something that occurred two hours earlier. And I agree, there's no reason you can't do that. 
You said that you'd found people, plural, who supported this idea. Who have you found besides C.S. Lewis? One is reported to be St. Padre Pio, the Italian Capuchin mystic who lived in the 20th century, and he was later canonized by St. John Paul II. In her book, Praying with the Saints for the Holy Souls in Purgatory, Susan Tassone writes, A doctor who was very close to Padre Pio received a letter from a woman whose daughter was near death. The mother implored the future saint for his priestly prayers and blessings. The doctor was unable to get this letter to Padre Pio until several days after he'd received it. After reading the letter to Padre Pio, the physician asked how he should answer it. Pio responded, Fiat, that is, let it be done. The doctor knew that some time had passed since he had received the letter and that the girl was at death's door. He was perplexed by Padre Pio's assurance that all was done, that the request for prayer would work. The Capuchin priest continued, Maybe you don't know that I can pray even now for the happy death of my great-grandfather. But he has been dead for many, many years, replied the doctor. I know that too, said Padre Pio. Let me explain by giving you an example. You and I both die, and through the good fortune and the goodness and mercy of the Lord, we are obliged to stay in purgatory for a hundred years. During these years, nobody prays for us or has a mass offered for the release of our souls. The hundred years pass, and somebody thinks of Padre Pio and the good doctor and has masses offered then. For our Lord, the past does not exist, the future does not exist. Everything is an eternal present. Those prayers had already been taken into account so that even now I can pray for the happy death of my great-grandfather. The little girl in need of prayer, by the way, was healed. So what Padre Pio seems to be saying was that even if nobody prays for him and the doctor for a hundred years, God can apply those prayers whenever they're needed in time. In the same way, he can pray for his great-grandfather to have a happy death in the past, and he can pray for the little girl, even though her case may have already resolved one way or the other. I've also seen reports of Padre Pio offering masses for people to have happy deaths in the past, though I haven't verified that to be the case. Another saint who has supported this general line of thought is St. Faustina Kowalska. In her diary, she has a nine-day novena prayer to the Divine Mercy, and the idea of things happening across time occurs in six of the nine days of the prayer. We won't read them all, but here's one of them. On day four of the novena, she invites us to consider Jesus saying the following. Today, bring to me the pagans and those who do not yet know me. I was thinking also of them during my bitter passion, and their future zeal comforted my heart. So this prayer invites us to see Jesus being comforted during his passion by the future zeal of pagans who will one day repent and become his followers. And so he, he asks the uh, person doing the novena to bring these pagans before him in prayer. Similarly, on day five, the novena invites us to envision Jesus saying, Today, bring to me the souls of heretics and schismatics and immerse them in the ocean of my mercy. During my bitter passion, they tore at my body and heart, that is, my church. As they return to unity with the church, my wounds heal, and in this way, they alleviate my passion. 
Here we have two future actions affecting Jesus during his passion back in AD 33. He is distressed by the future defection of heretics and schismatics, but he's comforted by the thought of their repentance and return. This doesn't directly involve prayer, but it does involve people in the future affecting Jesus in the past. And it gets us to a really key point that will spare us a lot of confusion, because it's here that many people make a mistake in their reasoning. That's understandable, since a lot of people, like Marty McFly, find it hard to think four-dimensionally. What's the mistake that people often make at this point? There's actually a set of them, but they all have to do with God's relationship to time. The Christian faith teaches that God is outside of time, so he exists in an eternal now, where there is no past, present, and future. From his perspective, the entire history of the world, our past, our present, and our future, are all equally present to him. But there's a debate about whether the past, present, and future are all equally real. Together with many philosophers and scientists, I hold the view that they are all real from an objective perspective, which would be God's perspective. This is a view known as eternalism. But not everyone agrees. For example, there are some people who hold that only the present is real, which is a view known as presentism. I've written about these views before, and we'll have links to where you can read about them. Now, here are two of the key mistakes that people make. First, they think that the issue of whether you believe in eternalism or presentism is somehow relevant to the discussion of praying for the past. For example, a presentist might think that if only the present is real, then the past is not real, so God cannot affect it based on your prayers. A presentist might say, I don't believe praying for the past is possible because I'm not an eternalist. Second, many people think that if God is affecting the past based on my prayers, that it would mean he's changing the past. But it's commonly held among theologians that changing the past is one of the few things God cannot do. That once a series of events has unfolded in time, God can't undo those events. He might have branching timelines that create the appearance of changing the past, but once an event has occurred before him in the eternal now, it can't be undone. It's fixed forever. And so people will argue it's useless to pray for events in the past because God can't change the past. And you're not impressed with these arguments. No, both of them are mistaken. The issue of presentism and eternalism has nothing to do with the issue, and neither does the subject of God changing the past. These are both irrelevant. Both of these mistakes involve conceptual errors, and both C.S. Lewis and St. Faustina provide the key to understanding why. The quotation we heard from C.S. Lewis alludes to this, but it's even more clear in the concrete illustrations that St. Faustina gave. In her novena, Jesus is depicted as being in the midst of his suffering and foreseeing what people would do in the future. As he was suffering, Christ foresaw that pagans would convert and that heretics and schismatics would leave and that they would come back. All of the effects happening in these scenarios was by Christ's foreknowledge of what would happen in the future. 
Similarly, C.S. Lewis said, To God, though not to me, I and the prayer I make in 1945 were just as much present at the creation of the world as they are now. So, to God, Lewis's prayer in 1945 was something God knew about at the creation of the world. And that's all you need for prayer concerning past events to work. You don't need to presuppose anything about God's relationship to time or which parts of time exist. Even if God was inside of time, the way that Jesus was when he was suffering, and even if only the present were real, this would still work. You can say that the suffering Jesus would be sorrowful if he contemplated the fact that some of his future followers would leave him and be comforted by the fact that others would return. Just based on his foreknowledge of what will happen in the future, even if the future doesn't exist, even if presentism were true. In the same way, if God were inside of time, which he's not, but if he were inside of time, and if only the present existed, he could still affect the present on the basis of a prayer he foresees that someone will say in the future. Can you give us a concrete example of how that would work? Sure. Uh, God is omniscient, so he knows everything. And that means he knows everything about the past and the present and the future. And on the presentist view, it doesn't matter when a prayer is uttered and then gets fulfilled at a different time. I mean, to see this, let's consider a standard case, which is praying for something in the future. The current year is 2022, so suppose that because of medical advances, someone will be alive 100 years from now and won't die until 2122. You don't know when that person will die, but you can still pray, Oh Lord, please give him the graces needed to get to heaven when the moment of death comes. It doesn't matter if presentism is true and 2122 isn't currently real. When 2122 arrives, then God, being omniscient, will remember your prayer from a century ago and he can act on it then, even though 2022 will no longer be real. It doesn't matter that on a presentist view, only 2122. 22 is real, and your prayer occurred at a time that is no longer real. In 2122, God has knowledge of the past and can answer a prayer that was made in the past. Presentists have no problem with the idea of praying for things in the future, even though the future isn't yet real on their view. They do it all the time. In fact, probably the majority of prayers are for things that haven't happened yet and thus pertain to a time that's not real on their view. And you're suggesting that they also shouldn't have a problem praying about an event in the past, even though the past isn't currently real. Correct. Suppose that one of my relatives lay dying in 1922. Back in 1922, even if God were inside of time and only 1922 was real, God was still omniscient. He would still have knowledge of the future. And thus, in 1922, God would know that a century later in 2022, I would be praying, oh God, let my relative have a happy death. Knowing about my future prayer by his omniscience, God would be able to answer it 
back in 1922, when 1922 was real on the presentist view. As a result, we can see that whether God is inside of time or outside of time or whether more than the present exists is irrelevant to the question of whether God can answer a prayer at any particular moment in history. In the future, God could answer prayers he remembers from when someone said them in the past. And in the past, God could answer them based on his foreknowledge of what people will pray in the future. So the idea that he couldn't answer prayers if in the past, if presentism is true, is a mistake. And as I said, I, I don't think presentism is true. I think that there's no coherent way to avoid the conclusion that the past, present, and future are all equally real for God from his timeless perspective in the eternal now. But that's a subject you can read about in some of the links we'll have. What about the argument that praying about an event in the past would require God to change the past and that this is something he can't do? Well, it's true that God can't change the past. Uh, the eternal now is outside of time, and so there's no time in which God could change a moment that he's created. It's not like he could create a moment in time, then whip out a big eraser and undo it, only to create something else in its place. That would require God to pass through three moments. First, the moment in which he created the original incident, then the moment in which he deletes the original incident, and then uh, third, the moment in which he creates the replacement incident. But since God doesn't pass through moments in time, he can't do this. As a result, once a moment exists before him in the eternal now, that moment always exists. It's a fixed point in time, and it can't be undone. Now, if God wants, he could create more than one moment, meaning branching timelines, and that could create the subjective appearance of changing history, like in Back to the Future Part 2, but it wouldn't be actually changing history. It would be timelines branching. If God can't change the past, why would he be able to answer prayers about past events? Well, to see why, let's think about the future again. And to keep it extra clear, let's assume once more that, for purposes of argument, that presentism is true. Suppose that it's 2022 and you're praying for the happy death of someone whenever that person may die in the future. Then, a century from now, when the person does die in 2122, God remembers your prayer and gives him the graces needed for a happy death. Ask yourself, is God changing the future from what it originally was? The answer is no. He's affecting the future. He's causing a particular thing to happen in the future, but he's not changing what happens in the future. It's, it's not like there was a moment where God let the person's death play out one way, and then he remembers your prayer and goes back and erases that version of the person's death and creates a new set of events to replace it. Unless God chose to create multiple timelines, the future only plays out one way, based on God's memory of your prayer and asking to let that person have a happy death. So how does that affect things if we flip this around and consider the past? 
Well, suppose that it's 1922 and your ancestor is dying. God does not allow history to play out one way. He does not remember that a century from now you're going to pray for your ancestor and he doesn't erase the set of events he originally let play out and then replace them with a new set of events. Instead, unless he chooses to involve multiple timelines, history only plays out one way. It's 1922. Your ancestor is dying, and God foresees your prayer a hundred years from now and acts accordingly. God simply has foreknowledge of what you will one day pray, and he can apply graces to your ancestor when your ancestor needs them. History only plays out one way, so there is no changing of the past. This also is a conceptual error that people make sometimes when thinking about this. And in Miracles, C.S. Lewis points out that your prayer would be contributing to what God did in the past, but it would not involve God changing what happened in the past. So he, your prayers are affecting the past if God chooses to act on them, but you're not changing the past. And it doesn't matter that 1922 would no longer be real if presentism were true. No, from my perspective in 2022, it doesn't matter if 1922 is no longer real. When it was real, God knew about my prayer in the future and could act on it. Even on presentism, praying uh, across time still works because of God's omniscience. Whatever year someone is in need of help, God can either foreknow a prayer that will be said in the future, or he can remember a prayer that was said in the past and help that person out. Thus, the arm of the Lord is not shortened. No matter when a person exists in time, God can help them on the basis of your prayer. We thus have a straightforward case from the faith perspective that we can pray for things in the past and that God can answer those prayers. And that brings us to the twist I promised from the reason perspective. And as usual, before we get to a twist, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Martin G., Robert S., Kelly G., Jacob S., and Mary W. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. All right. Let's go back to the question we started with. Why did you want to do this episode? You said that it involved a twist you promised. The twist is that prayer for events in the past has actually been tested scientifically. Recently, I was reading a paper from the December 2001 issue of the British Medical Journal entitled Effects of Remote Retroactive Intercessory Prayer on Outcomes in Patients with Bloodstream Infection, Randomized Controlled Trial. It was about a study done in Israel by Professor Leonard uh, Leibovici of Tel Aviv University, and it caught my eye because it was a study on the efficacy of prayer, and it really caught my eye because I noticed the word retroactive in front of intercessory prayer. 
That meant it was a study of praying for things that had occurred in the past. So it was fascinating to come across a scientific study on exactly this subject. Have there been other scientific studies of prayer, ones where they weren't trying to affect events in the past? There have been a variety of studies, and we may discuss them in more detail in future episodes. But the British Medical Journal paper uh, mentioned two that involved randomized controlled trials. A controlled trial is an experiment in which you divide the groups you're testing or divide the subjects you're testing into different groups, one of which is used as a control group to measure what happens if you don't perform a particular intervention. Uh, you know, for example, um, if you're testing a weight loss drug, you want an experimental group and a control group. You give the experimental group the actual drug to see what effect it has, and you give the control group a pill that should not have an effect on their weight. And you then compare the effect of the intervention to the effect the intervention had on the experimental group compared to the effect on the control group of the non-intervention. And that lets you eliminate things like placebo effects, since the control group didn't know which pill they were receiving. But your results could still be skewed by other factors. Yeah. For example, suppose that your weight loss drug does a lot better for men than it does for women. If you put all the men in your study in the control group and all the women in the experimental group, then the men, the people the drug could actually help, won't get any help. They'll they'll just be getting the useless pill. And that would make it look like the drug doesn't work because it's not being given to the people it could actually help. So to avoid factors like this skewing the results, it's better if you assign your test subjects to the two categories randomly so that there's a mix of similar people in each group. As a result, randomized controlled trials are considered the best kind of medical trials. They produce more reliable results than experimental trials that either aren't randomized or aren't controlled. What did these two studies, the ones that did not involve praying for the past, show? According to the article, two randomized controlled trials tested the effect of remote intercessory prayer, praying for persons unknown, on outcomes in patients admitted to an intensive coronary care unit. Both studies showed a beneficial effect. The article also mentioned a meta-analysis, which is a kind of study that aggregates the results of other studies. In this case, the meta-analysis looked at the effects of both prayer and other ways that people have sought to perform distant healing. A recent systematic review of the efficacy of distant healing concluded that approximately 57%, 13 of 23, of the randomized placebo-controlled trials of distant healing showed a positive treatment effect and that the evidence thus far warrants further study. The meta-analysis was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, and we'll have a link to it so you can read it as well. After mentioning some of the work that had already been done in the field, uh, Dr. Levovici explained that what his own study was after. The purpose of the present study was to extend these observations to patients with another severe disorder, bloodstream infections. As we cannot assume a priori that time is linear as we perceive it, or that God is limited by a linear time as we are, the intervention was carried out four to ten years after the patient's infection and hospitalization. The hypothesis was that remote 
retroactive intercessory prayer reduces mortality and shortens the length of stay in hospital and duration of fever. So Dr. Lebovici went to the Rabin Medical Center, a university hospital in Israel, and pulled the records of all the adult patients who had had bloodstream infections that were detected at the hospital between 1990 and 1996. There turned out to be 3,393 such patients. In July 2000, a random number generator was used to randomize the patients into two groups. A coin was tossed to designate the intervention group. A list of the first names of the patients in the intervention group was given to a person who said a short prayer for the well-being and full recovery of the group as a whole. There was no sham intervention. A sham intervention is like when you give people a fake treatment so that they don't know that they're in the control group, like giving a sugar pill to people when you're testing a medicine. But since none of these bloodstream infection patients knew that someone would be praying for them four to 10 years after they were in the hospital, they didn't even know about the experiment. And so there was no need to uh, give the control subjects a fake or sham treatment. There's no way, or at least no non-psychic way, that their knowledge of the experiment could affect the outcome of their results since they didn't even know about the experiment. And so uh, they ended up with a randomized group of 1,691 patients in the intervention group and 1,702 patients in the control group, so approximately equal-sized groups. And they did a check of the risk factors that could affect the course of the bloodstream infections that these patients had, you know, to determine is one group more likely to have bad results or good results than the other based on these cofactors, like maybe someone has other health problems and so the blood infection is more likely to kill them. Well, they found that the two groups were effectively randomized and very well matched, so neither group would be likely to do statistically better than the other with the outcomes of their diseases. And then they tossed a coin to find out which group would be prayed for. They then had a single person say a short prayer for the well-being and full recovery of the intervention group as a whole. And then they looked into the hospital records to find out what had happened with the two groups. There were three measures they looked at to judge whether the prayer had been effective. Three primary outcomes were compared. The number of deaths in hospital, length of stay in hospital from the day of, their, of the first positive blood culture to discharge or death, and duration of fever. Patients were defined as having fever on a specific day if one of three temperature measurements taken on that day showed a temperature of greater than 37.5 degrees Celsius or 99.5 degrees Fahrenheit. So the three measures they judged success were by did the prayer reduce the number of patients who died as a result of their blood infection? Did it shorten their length of stay in the hospital after the infection was diagnosed? And did it reduce the duration of their fever? What did they find when they looked back in the hospital records to see the outcomes? When it came to mortality, they found that the patients who were prayed for did have a better chance of surviving the blood infection on the basis of just one short prayer. Of those in the prayer group, 28.1% died and the other 71.9% survived. 
That's compared to 30.2% of the people who were not prayed for dying and 69.8% surviving. The difference was 2.1%. So the people who were prayed for had a 2.1% better chance of surviving just based on the one short prayer. That's a good result. It's obviously better to survive a blood infection than to not survive it. But it's still a small result, and it was consequently not considered statistically significant. Not all of our listeners may be used to reading scientific papers. So what is statistical significance? It's a measure of how likely something could be due to random chance. It's always possible that the prayer group survived 2.1% better by random chance rather than because of the prayer. So Dr. Leibovici did what is normally done in studies like this and calculated the p-values of those results. P-values are a measure of how probable it is that the results are due to random chance. Um, A p-value is a number, and the p-value in this case was 0.4, which meant that there was a 40% chance that the better survival of the one group could have been due to random chance. What would the number need to be in order to be considered statistically significant? A standard measure for statistical significance would be a p-value of 0.05 or less. That means that there's only a 5% or 1 in 20 likelihood that the results were due to random chance, and thus that there's a 95% or 19 in 20 likelihood that chance was not responsible for the results. A The smaller the p-value of the results are, the less likely it is that chance was responsible, and so the smaller the p-value is, the better. In this case, the people who were prayed for did have a better chance of surviving, so the intervention returned a positive effect, but the p-value was just 0.4 rather than 0.05 or less, and so it, it wasn't considered statistically significant. Would there be a way to retest and get a handle on whether the 2.1% better survival rate was due to prayer or chance? Yeah, one way would be to run the test on a larger pool of patients. If an effect holds up with a larger number of test subjects, you have more confidence that it isn't just chance that's responsible. That's why we don't run drug trials on just one or two people. With small sample sizes, there's a much greater likelihood that chance is responsible for whatever effect or lack of effect that you see. And so we want sample sizes and studies to be as large as possible. So if you did this experiment on a much larger number of people and the extra 2.1% survival rate held up, it would give you much greater confidence that this was due to the short prayer rather than just a chance. Overall, patient mortality was only one of the three things they measured, though. What about the other two? Did they show better results? Yes. uh, When it came to the duration of fever, the prayer group got better faster than the control group. They recovered from their fevers sooner. And the p-value for this was 0.04, meaning that there is only a 4% likelihood of it being explained by random chance. So that is considered statistically significant. In other words, there was a 96% chance that they recovered faster due to the prayer, or at least that's a conventional way of looking at the data. 
when it came to how long they stayed in the hospital after they were diagnosed with blood infection, the prayer group also got out of the hospital faster. And the p-value in this case was 0.01, meaning that there was a 1% likelihood that this was just due to random chance and a 99% chance that it was due to the prayer, or at least that's a w conventional way of looking at the data. Professor Leibovici uh, summarized these results as follows. Remote, retroactive, intercessory prayer was associated with a shorter stay in hospital and a shorter duration of fever in patients with a bloodstream infection. Mortality was lower in the intervention group, but the difference between the groups was not statistically significant. A larger study might have shown a statistically significant reduction in mortality. Also, it's worth pointing out that this wasn't just a randomized control trial. It was also double blind because the patients and the person doing the prayer never met, meaning that personal interactions between them could not affect the results. Dr. Leibovici writes, The very design of the study assured perfect blinding to patients and medical staff of allocation of patients and even the existence of the trial. Regrettably, the very same design meant that it was not possible to obtain the informed consent of the patients. You want to obtain informed consent from patients, if at all possible, but because the patients were in the past and thus not physically accessible, they couldn't give their informed consent in the year 2000, especially the ones who were no longer living. So, but nevertheless, it was a really well-blinded study. The paper concludes... Remote, retroactive, intercessory prayer can improve outcomes in patients with a bloodstream infection. This intervention is cost-effective, probably has no adverse effects, and should be considered for clinical practice. Further studies may determine the most effective form of this intervention and its effect in other severe conditions and may clarify its mechanism. And I'd agree with all that. Uh, praying for sick people is good, even if those people are in the past. Are there grounds on which you could criticize this study? There are always grounds on which you can criticize a study. Uh, there are multiple ways that studies can go wrong, which include things like the study is poorly designed. Its results could be due to random chance, even if they don't appear to be. Um, the study authors may have engaged in problematic practices that could produce misleading results, like a famous practice known as p-hacking, which manipulates the p-values that a study gets. And the researchers could even commit fraud and fake their results. As we'll talk about in a future episode, there's a crisis in science right now involving uh, all of these factors. And it turns out that a startlingly high number of studies are flawed in one way or another. It's even been estimated that more than 50% of them need to have their results revised or retracted for different reasons. So we have to take seriously the possibility that any given study may be wrong. What about this study? Could it fall into that category? It could, but you have to judge each study on its own merits based on what you know about it. Otherwise, you'd have to dismiss every study out of hand, and that would be a mistake. Science may not be perfect, but it has improved the state of our knowledge. 
in the case of this study, it seems to be very well designed, being a double-blind, randomized, controlled trial with well-balanced intervention and control groups. And I don't have any evidence uh, that p-hacking or other shady practices, much less fraud, were involved. So I'm optimistic about this one, but I'd like to see it replicated. Any given study can be wrong, no matter how well designed it is. And that's the reason we want to see independent replication by other researchers that nevertheless shows the same results. And I'd love to see this experiment rerun in other hospitals to see if if its results hold up. But at least this study is a data point suggesting that retroactive prayer has real effects. Some skeptics might reject the results of this study on the grounds that there's no natural explanation for why retroactive prayer would work, that it doesn't fit with a naturalistic worldview. What would you say to this? I'd say it's mistaken on two fronts. First, it's based on anti-supernatural bias that discounts the idea that there are things outside the physical universe, like God, that could have an effect on things within the physical universe. And second... You don't need an explanation for an effect in order to document that the effect is real. Isaac Newton did not have an explanation for gravity when he developed a mathematical description of its effects. In fact, he was accused, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, of appealing to natural magic because we can't see gravity, only its effects, and there was no obvious reason massive bodies should attract each other. But Newton's equations worked, and today everybody accepts gravity, even though we still don't have a good understanding of what gravity is or or exactly why it works. The same is just as true when it comes to medical interventions like praying for sick people. Dr. Leibovici anticipates this objection in his article and writes, No mechanism known today can account for the effects of remote retroactive intercessory prayer said for a group of patients with a bloodstream infection. However, the significant results and the flawless design prove that an effect was achieved. To quote Harris et al., when James Lind, by clinical trial, determined that lemons and limes cured scurvy aboard the HMS Salisbury in 1753, he not only did not know about ascorbic acid, vitamin C, he did not even understand the concept of a nutrient. There was a natural explanation for his findings that would be clarified centuries later, but his inability to articulate it did not invalidate his observations. And that's right. The inability to explain why something works does not invalidate your observation that it does work. And if you've got a medical intervention that works and is safe, you ought to use it, even if you don't know why it works. In fact, that happens all the time. In modern medicine. I don't know if the listener has ever done this, but if you look up what's called the mechanism of action for a particular drug, you will often find entries in medical reference sources that say mechanism of action unknown. In other words, we don't know why this drug works. We just know that it works. Over the years, I've looked up multiple drugs and I don't know how many times I've seen that. Let's look at retroactive prayer from the faith perspective once more. Since this involved a scientific experiment involving prayer, could it violate the biblical exhortation not to put God to the test? Like in Deuteronomy 6.16, where it says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Could the whole idea of a study like this be problematic? 
It is indeed wrong to put God to the test, but that doesn't mean what a lot of people suppose. In fact, as we'll see, this experiment really was kind of the opposite of putting him to the test. To understand why and what the concept of testing God really means, we need to read the full text of Deuteronomy 6.16, because people often forget about the second part of it. Deuteronomy 6.16 clarifies the kind of testing that it's talking about, because the full verse reads, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. That final qualifier, as you tested him at Massa, is important because it tells us what kind of testing is in mind by giving us an example. But people forget about it because they don't read their Old Testament a lot, and so they don't remember what happened at Massa off the top of their heads. So what happened at Massa? The event is found in Exodus 17. It was an occasion during the Exodus when the Israelites' water supply ran low while they were in the desert, and they demanded that Moses give them water to drink. Moses turned to God, who performed a miracle to get them the water they needed, and afterwards we read, And Moses called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the fault-finding of the sons of Israel, and because they put the Lord to the test by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So that is what testing involved, because the Israelites were saying, is God really among us or not? They were doubting God's providence and love for them. They were proposing that he had abandoned them in the desert to die. And if he had abandoned them, they would abandon him in return and worship other gods. So they demanded a miracle to prove that God was still taking care of them instead of trusting that he would get them through the situation. And that is the kind of testing that's wrong. We shouldn't demand miracles as proof that God loves us. If you say things like, God, if you don't give me what I'm asking for, I'm not going to believe in you anymore, or I'm not going to believe that you love me, or I am going to believe that you've abandoned me, or things like that, then you are testing God in the sense that's wrong. God may or may not give you the miracle you ask for. I mean, he did give one to the Israelites that were testing him in that way. But it would still be wrong to put God's existence or love to the test in this kind of hostile way, just like it would be wrong for the children in a family to say to their parents, you don't love me unless you buy this thing for me. That's putting the parents' love to the test by demanding the child be given something as proof. And when that kind of hostile questioning and demanding starts to happen, it isn't a healthy attitude for children to take with respect to their parents. And neither is it a healthy relationship when people start taking that attitude towards God. You're saying that this kind of attitude is wrong, but that God doesn't have a problem with other kinds of quote-unquote testing? Right. God is perfectly willing to give people evidence, sometimes even miraculous evidence, of his existence and his love for them, as long as they're not being snotty little brats about it. In the Gospels, Jesus performs many miracles, and he even appeals to them as proof that God is working through him. In John 10, uh, verses 37 and 38, he says, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. 
And in John 14, 11, he says, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. So Jesus is willing to perform miracles as evidence of his religious claims, like the Father is working through him and he is in union with the Father. You said that Dr. Lebovici's study is actually the opposite of testing God. Why did you say that? Because of the attitude he appears to display in it. He's not taking a hostile, demanding, or skeptical attitude towards God in the paper. He's taking a positive one. As the article makes clear, he's been studying the literature on other experiments involving prayer, and he's been so encouraged by them that he wants to do his own experiment to replicate and amplify those results by showing that prayer even works when you're praying for something in the past. So far from questioning or rejecting God's existence, he says, we can't assume that God is limited by a linear time the way we are. And if you think about it, showing that God will answer prayers even when they apply to the past would be an even more dramatic way of showing God's greatness than the previous prayer studies have done. This is more like Jesus offering miracles as evidence supporting the religious message than it's like the Israelites demanding a miracle or they will abandon God. It's a fundamentally positive rather than negative attitude. And so it's not putting God to the test in the sense that Deuteronomy has in mind. Dr. Lebovici's experiment provided evidence from the reason perspective that suggests God will help people in the past based on prayers in the future. Do we have any confirmation of that from the faith perspective? In addition to the theological principles we've laid out, there are also incidents from private revelation that suggest this. On this matter, I want to thank a gentleman in Australia named Tom, who heard me talk about this on Catholic Answers Live and sent me links to some material. So thank you, Tom in Australia. In 1895, a book was published called Charity for the Suffering Souls. It was by Father John Nigelison, who was a missionary priest. And like religious books at that time, it was required to have an imprimatur, which it did. So that's a guarantee it doesn't contain heresy. In the book, Father Nigelison writes, In his foreknowledge of the prayers, sufferings, virtues, and merits of his divine son, God granted many graces to mankind even before redemption was accomplished. In like manner does he also grant many graces in the foreknowledge of our prayer, and of the prayers and sacrifices of the church, especially to sinners that they may be saved by his grace. Masters of spiritual life ascribe these sudden effects of grace to various causes. So even though he's writing before Albert Einstein's discoveries about time and space, this 19th century priest is stating that God does use his foreknowledge of what people will pray in the future to help people in the past, just like he helped mankind before the time of Jesus based on what he knew Jesus would do on the cross. And he indicates that masters of spiritual life are also on board with this idea and that they've explored it in their writings. So this is not some newfangled modern thing in Catholic theology. It's been around for quite a while. He also specifically addresses the issue of God helping a person die in grace based on someone's future prayers and to retroactively helping someone out of purgatory, stating, In the foreknowledge of our future prayer, God often grants us sinner the grace of a good death. The prayers which console us at this hour also have in the past assisted in releasing that soul we so dearly love from purgatory. 
He then gives a couple of examples from private revelation in which it was reported that prayers in the future helped people in the past. The first involves St. Gertrude the Great, who lived in the 1200s. St. Gertrude was once informed of the death of a man who had led a very worldly-minded life. From compassion for the sorrow of his relatives, she prayed for him a long time. At last, his soul appeared to her in a deformed shape, black and mournful. The saint thenceforth redoubled her prayer and implored Jesus to favor and pardon this soul. Our Lord consented and asked her, In what manner shall I favor this man? Shall I pardon all his sins and release him? Gertrude feared that this might not accord with divine justice, but Jesus replied, It would not be contrary to my justice if thou wouldst confidently implore me to do so, because at his death I foresaw thy prayer, and therefore I disposed him that he might receive and profit by thy charity. The saint now answered, Then, O Lord, thou source and cause of our salvation, I beseech thee to complete this work of thy mercy in the manner most acceptable to thee, because thy grace inspires me with full confidence in thee. Scarcely had she finished when the deceased soul appeared to her in human form, cleansed and purified. So in this reported private revelation, Jesus tells St. Gertrude that at the moment of the man's death, he had foreknowledge of her future prayer and gave the man the grace needed to help him. Something similar happens in the second report that Father Nicolaisen gives, which involves a nun named Sister Mary Dionysia. In the life of Sister Mary Dionysia, a nun of the Visitation, we read that nine years before her death, the Lord led her, after communion, to the confines of purgatory, in a vision. It was on the feast of Our Lady of Angels. He showed her the soul of a prince in purgatory who had been killed in a duel, but who, in consideration of her future suffrages, received the grace of true contrition at the very moment of his death. Our Lord exhorted her to pray for this soul with particular fervor. So in this reported private revelation, Jesus shows Sister Mary Dionysia a soul of a prince that's currently in purgatory, and the reason he's in purgatory rather than hell is because Jesus foresaw Sister Mary's future prayers for him and gave him the grace he needed at the moment of death based on those future prayers. So Jesus tells her to pray for him with particular fervor, uh, apparently both for his salvation in the past, closing the causal loop on that, and also praying for him as he's being purified. Jesus also showed her the man's life in the vision and how... In his last moment, the prince regained consciousness and, as it were, instinctively called on God for help. And this was the same moment when grace touched him. Cooperating with it and aided by it, he made an act of perfect contrition and was saved. So Jesus reportedly showed the time of the prince's death and how God used uh, Sister Mary's future prayers to help save him at the last moment. Now, I don't know that these reported private revelations have ever been investigated and approved. They could be pious legends or otherwise inaccurate. But even if they are, they would still show that the idea of praying across time is not something new in Christian thought. It has a history, and that history would stretch back to the 1200s if the report about St. Gertrude the Great is accurate. Furthermore, if these incidents represent genuine private revelations, that would be evidence that not only can God help people in the past based on future prayers, but that God does 
help people in the past based on them. If it's possible to pray across time, whether for the past or the future, are there any things we should not pray for? Yes, and it's the same in both cases. We should not pray for things that we know are not God's will. If I know that it's God's will that something not happen in the future, then I shouldn't pray that it does happen. Uh, For example, I know that it is God's will that Christ will come back someday and that the dead will be resurrected. Therefore, I should not reject God's known will by praying that Christ not come back or that the dead not be resurrected. In the same way, if I know that it was God's will to allow the September 11th attacks to happen in our timeline, then it would be wrong for me to pray that they not happen in our timeline. Making a prayer like that would be setting my will in opposition to God's, and that's wrong. But I can pray for things about 9-11 that I don't know to be contrary to God's will. For example, I can pray that as they were dying, God gave the 9-11 victims the grace they needed to go to heaven. I can even pray that the terrorists repented in their last moments of life, and I have prayed that. And even though I know it was God's will to let 9-11 happen in our timeline— I don't know about other timelines. There could be parallel worlds out there, and God might be willing to let the 9-11 terrorists be stopped in some of them. That's why, in what I think of as my cosmic prayer, I ask God to help people across all times and worlds, because there's more than one time and there's more than one world. I mean, we know other planets exist, and there may be parallel worlds and alternate timelines, so... I don't want to leave anybody out of my prayers. You've mentioned doing this kind of prayer before. What exactly do you pray? Some listeners, and I include myself among them, will be curious. I've experimented and revised the prayer over time, but it's reached a mature enough form that I recently shared it with a listener who asked on Catholic Answers Live, so I can go ahead and make it public here, even though I may still tinker with it in the future. Basically, there's a short prayer that I often say, and of course I often say other prayers. In particular, I want to say the Lord's Prayer regularly since it was given to us by Jesus himself. But I also try to say one that asks for God's mercy for everyone in creation. Since humans have a tendency to focus more on what they want than on what they've already received, I begin the prayer with a statement of gratitude. I pray, thank you for all the graces in our lives, the natural and especially the supernatural. And I add that last part as a reminder that God gives us both natural graces like food and health and earthly happiness, but he also gives us supernatural graces like repentance and forgiveness. And the latter are the more important because they affect our eternal happiness. Then I pray for particular people that have needs I know about, and there's a variable number of such people depending on what needs I'm aware of at the time, so I'll just say, please help these people and these other people. Next, I pray for several classes of people based on their relationship to prayer. I pray for all who are praying. I want to reinforce their prayers as they seek help from God. I also pray for all who have asked for prayer. And for everyone who would want prayer, even if they haven't asked for it, 
and then for everyone who would benefit from prayer, even if they currently don't want it. And then I add the what I think of as the cosmic part of the prayer, adding the specifier across all times and worlds, meaning across every part of time and across every realm of God's creation, even ones we don't know about. And since the most important decisions that humans and angels and presumably other intelligent creatures make is their final decision of whether or not to be with God, I add the phrase, especially as they make their ultimate decisions concerning you. And then finally, since our path in life and our journey towards God can be a bumpy one, I also pray that God will be as gentle as possible with us, meaning superlatively gentle, gentle in uh, the way only God can be as we're on our journey. And so the whole prayer sounds like this. Lord, thank you for the graces in our lives, the natural and especially the supernatural. Please help. And then I name various particular people or think of particular people who have needs. Please help all those who are praying or who have asked for prayer or who would want prayer or who would benefit from prayer across all times and worlds, especially as they make their ultimate decisions concerning you. And please be superlatively gentle with all of us in all things. And that's what I think of as my cosmic prayer, because I'm trying to pray for everyone in God's creation. Have you ever thought about publishing this prayer? I have. I'd need to submit it for Ecclesiastical Review to do that, but I don't think that would you know, generate any issues. And I've even thought about establishing a small nonprofit to promote it, as I think it could play a positive role for some people spiritually, as well as promoting the goods that come from prayer. But I haven't done that at at least not yet. Perhaps listeners would care to give their feedback on the idea, including any feedback they might have about how the prayer could be improved. In this episode, we've laid out a case for praying across time, including for events in the past. We've seen that Christian thinkers like C.S. Lewis and saints like St. Padre Pio and St. Faustina have supported it and had similar concepts. Do we have anything from the church's magisterium on the subject? We don't have an explicit direct statement, which isn't that surprising since it involves a kind of abstract thinking that doesn't come naturally to most people? But the Holy Spirit leads the faithful and the church to explore new aspects of the faith that Jesus gave us over time as part of the process of theological and doctrinal development. We may one day have a direct magisterial statement on this topic, but we already have one that has a bearing on it, and it's a supportive statement. For a long time, people have wondered about praying for loved ones who are in purgatory. I mean, what if your loved one is already out of purgatory? He's already been purified and is now in heaven from an earthly perspective. Is your prayer for him wasted in those cases? Well, people don't like the idea of prayers going to waste. And a traditional answer that I've heard given to this type of question is, don't worry, if your loved one is already out of purgatory, God can apply your prayer to someone else who needs it. And that's true. God could do that. But I've never been impressed with this response because it doesn't do justice to the full scope of God's power. The truth is that even if your relative is out of purgatory now, 
God has the power to apply your prayer to the person when they needed it, back when they were in purgatory. And so you don't need to think about God's power as being limited and unable to help your relative. God can help your relative back when the purification process was still underway. And so in 20, in uh, 2007, Pope Benedict XVI wrote about this in his encyclical Spesalvi on Christian hope. He wrote about purgatory as an encounter with the fiery love of Jesus, which transforms and purifies us. And then he wrote, At the moment of judgment, we experience and we absorb the overwhelming power of his love over all the evil in the world and in ourselves. The pain of love becomes our salvation and our joy. It is clear that we cannot calculate the duration of this transforming burning in terms of the chronological measurements of this world. The transforming moment of this encounter eludes earthly time reckoning. It is the heart's time. It is the time of passage to communion with God in the body of Christ. So Pope Benedict argues that the duration of purgatory cannot be measured in earthly time. He then addresses the subject of praying for those in purgatory and says, My prayer for another is not something extraneous to that person, something external, not even after death. In the interconnectedness of being, my gratitude to the other, my prayer for him, can play a small part in his purification. And for that, there is no need to convert earthly time into God's time. In the communion of souls, simple terrestrial time is superseded. It is never too late to touch the heart of another, nor is it ever in vain. In this way, we further clarify an important element of the Christian concept of hope. So he says that there is no need to worry about converting earthly time into God's time, and there's no need to worry about whether your loved one is already out of purgatory or not. You can always pray for them. It is never too late. As he puts it, in the communion of souls, simple terrestrial time is superseded. It is never too late to touch the heart of another, nor is it ever in vain, because God is not bound by earthly time, and he can apply your prayer to a person in purgatory whenever that person needs help. And if that's true of helping people when they were in purgatory, it's also true of other things you can pray for. If God's not bound by earthly time, then, as we've seen in this episode, he can apply your prayer today to people in the future when they will need it, and he can apply your prayer today to people in the past when they did need it, which is why I often encourage listeners of Mysterious World to pray for people who were involved in the particular historical mysteries that we cover, even though those people are in the past. Jimmy, what's your bottom line on tra uh, time travel prayer praying in the past? From a philosophical and theological point of view, uh, prayer across time, whether praying for the past or the future, is quite possible. And it doesn't matter if you're an eternalist or a presentist. God is able to help a person no matter what times are real and what time you're praying for them. Figures like C.S. Lewis, St. Padre Pio, St. Faustina Kowalska, and Pope Benedict XVI acknowledge the principles involved. Uh, just don't pray for things that you know to be against God's will and so set your will in opposition to God's.
And in light of the British Medical Journal article, we have scientific evidence suggesting that God does answer prayers for things in the past. I'd like to see more research done to bear that out, but I'm very glad to have evidence suggesting that it's never too late to pray for someone. Jimmy, what further resources can we offer the viewers and listeners on the topic? We'll have links to C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles, which I highly recommend. Uh, also, Susan Tassone's book, Praying with the Saints for the Holy Souls in Purgatory. Also, The Diary of St. Faustina Kowalska and Father John Negolason's book, Charity for the Suffering Souls. Also, Benedict XVI's encyclical Spes Salvi, Leonard Leibovici's uh, paper from the British uh, Journal of Medicine or British Medical Journal, Aston et al.'s meta-analysis of distant healing in the annals of internal medicine, as well as uh, several articles by me on praying across time that I've written previously at jimmyakin.com, as well as a series of articles by me on the nature of time that discusses presentism and eternalism. That's going to be some good reading. So folks, check that out. Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, I thought I'd update us on a few recent episodes we have. Recently, we talked about uh, how the government causes inflation and how it phonies the numbers to hide how much inflation there is. And we uh, talked about one resource that you could use that uh, reflects the um, the system that the government used before the 1980s when they started tinkering with it to hide the inflation. Also, uh, so this time we have a new link about a new resource uh, that is designed to be censorship resistant. It's a censorship resistant inflation index that uses um, similar methodology to the government, but in, but it is uh, data driven in a way the government's is not. Uh, the government's inflation index involves like calling people up and surveying them as opposed to just using the data that's out there on the web. Like if you want to determine home prices, the most accurate way to do that is not by calling people and saying, how much did you recently pay? It's by looking on Zillow and, you know, looking at the actual transactions. And so uh, check out this uh, potential new uh, censorship resistant inflation index, which, by the way, says that current inflation rates are over 13% instead of the 8% the government is reporting. Also, uh, we recently uh, talked about the Hindenburg and how it was a hydrogen dirigible that ended uh, a lot of the use of hydrogen dirigibles after the disaster. Well, everything old is new again. And so we'll have a link to an article about a new planned uh, fleet of hydrogen dirigibles um, that are partly for purposes of transporting the hydrogen as a green energy initiative, because if you, you want the hydrogen to get from one place to another, well, let's fly a dirigible that's filled with the stuff and then you can drain it when it gets to the destination. So uh, that's one of the proposals that's out there right now. So you can check that out. Lighter than air. So you might as well just carry it in the air like a balloon. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Awesome. All right. Well, that's it from us this time. We would love to hear your theories and your reaction to praying across time. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, send a tweet to at mys underscore world you can post it in the starquest discord community at sqpn.com slash discord or call our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515
And I want to thank Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work they've done on this episode and all the episodes of Mysterious World uh, lately. If you have a need for video editing and animation services, be sure and contact them. And if you haven't seen the uh, the way they've helped improve the video presentation of Mysterious World, definitely go by JimmyAiken.com. I'm sorry, uh, you can get there through JimmyAiken.com, but to get there directly, go to YouTube.com slash JimmyAiken. That's my YouTube channel. We have all the Mysterious World videos there, as well as other videos that I do. And uh, please, while you're there, I, I am trying to grow my channel. And so I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get a notification whenever I have a new video. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going to be answering patrons questions. And so we're going to be talking about things like psychedelic machine elves and cryptozoological animals, speaking with spirits, bilocation, how twins get their souls, the Bible code, and more. It's psychedelic. All right, folks. Sure. Not just psychedelic, psychedelic machine <laughs> elves. Dying to find out what that means. All right. <laughs> folks, be sure to share the podcast with your friends and write a review of the show in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from to help us grow this great community and to reach more listeners. You'll find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fearvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at DeliverContacts.com. Until next time, Jimmy Yakin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Technology. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash technology.